1541 marked the first descent of the Amazon River by a Spanish conquistador. This is uncharted territory with countless dangers. That included the natives. Many were friendly, but some were hostile. In fact, the name Amazon was given to this region when the Spanish were attacked by some natives where the women fought fiercely alongside the men, evoking tales of the Amazon warriors from Greek mythology. The first expedition down the Amazon saw scores of Spaniards die, some to natives, but most to wildlife and disease. The Amazon is one of those places where it seems like everything wants to kill you. You have bullet ants, which are known to have the most powerful sting in the animal kingdom, and the poison dart frog, thought to be the most poisonous animal there is. And then there's jaguars, alligators, anacondas, and the most deadly animal of them all, because of disease, the mosquito. Amazon expeditions came with great loss of life, so future explorers would regularly employ field guides, some natives to serve as field guides. They knew the, the lay of the land, they knew which tribes would attack. They knew which tributaries had piranhas. They knew which plants would kill you. And such field guides proved invaluable to safely navigating the river while avoiding the thousand ways to die. And so it goes for any trek into uncharted territory or especially dangerous territory. You value your life. You don't want to suffer ruin or death. And so you would happily employ a field guide who can take you through that territory safely. And all this is just as true, spiritually speaking. Each and every day, we find ourselves inevitably wandering through some land of temptation. And sometimes we're facing brand new, uncharted allurements. But most often, it's the same old frequent <coughs> temptations. But they strangely always catch us off guard. And even after many years, some of us simply have not learned how to safely navigate this field of temptations, and to come out without falling into sin. It's like walking through a minefield. Even after many years, some Christians still don't know how to spot an active mine, and others don't know how to diffuse it when they have stepped on it. And so as a result, they just blow up into sin time and time again. But what if I told you, though, there was a field guide available for your journey through all the trials and temptations of this life? What if I told you someone has gone before you and they've already successfully navigated this field mine without blowing up once? And now this person can show you the way. This person can teach you how to face temptation and overcome. Wouldn't you want to know who this person is? Wouldn't you want to follow this field guide? You would if you're serious in your quest to, to honor and to follow Christ. And what do you know? Christ just so happens to be that field guide. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, where this morning we're going to revisit a major milestone in Christ's ministry, namely his temptation by the devil in the wilderness. And just a couple weeks ago, we already preached through these verses, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. We went through them verse by verse in detail, focusing on the main point, which is all about Christ. We found that God himself designed this wilderness trial for his son, not to tempt him, as God never tempts to evil, but to test him. This testing had as its goal to demonstrate that Jesus really was God's worthy Messiah. 
But the nature of this test in God's sovereignty would come through temptation. And the agent of that temptation was not God, but the devil. Satan himself approaches Jesus to tempt him. And the father allowed Jesus to be variously tempted by the devil, that he might be proven sinless. You recall back in Matthew 3, God the father just broke open heaven to openly declare that Jesus is his beloved son in whom he's well, uh, well pleased. It's one thing to say that, but now God wants to demonstrate that. And so it says Jesus is led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But God's purpose here is not to tempt, but to test and prove that his son will pass that test. And for our sake, this trial is recorded in scripture. The test results are in. We get to look at them and And we find that Jesus passed the test. He never sinned. He never gave in to temptation. And so his role as a second Adam and a second Israel, a sympathetic high priest, a sinless savior, were all proved as he overcame temptation in the wilderness. And as a result, we can have full confidence in his ability to save. Our faith, which is in Christ alone, is not misplaced. That's, that's what we discovered all last time. But that's not the end of this text's value. The main point here is it's not about us. It's about Jesus. Matthew 4, above all, is meant to explain and then exalt Christ's status as a sinless Savior. And we've got to keep the main point central. And that's why we devoted all of our time to it last time. But that being said, there is a second layer here, namely how we too can follow Jesus and overcome our own temptations. There's a plethora of scriptures calling us to follow Christ and to imitate Christ. Really, can you think of a better way practically to imitate him than this, than in overcoming sin, facing temptation, finding the way of escape? We're meant to follow Jesus in this manner. Consider, for example, Hebrews 2.18. It says, for since Christ himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And later Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. We're meant to look to Jesus as the one who has gone before us, He's overcome all types of temptation that we face. He never gave into sin. Even though he was living in the weakness of human flesh, he's facing satanic opposition. He still endured without sin, as should we. And the fact that Matthew in his gospel, he does not merely record the fact that Jesus overcame temptation, but he actually gives us intricate details as to how Jesus overcame temptation. I think it's fair to say we are intended to follow suit. We find, yes, first and foremost, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. It shows Jesus being field tested and approved by the Father. He's proven as our sinless Savior. But because of that, he can now serve as our field guide. The Father sent the Son into the field. He took on a human nature. He lived in this world this fallen world among us. He knows the territory. He knows the spiritual dangers better than we do. But he made it all the way through this life 
completely unscathed by sin. And so what more qualified field guide is there when it comes to living the Christian life and following Jesus? You should look to Jesus. And if you really are serious about following Christ with all your life, like I said, there, there are a few more significant ways to do so than this right here, learning how to overcome temptation like he did. And so our goal today is just to revisit this passage, the same verses, but this time to consider how we can look to Jesus as a field guide for overcoming temptation. How we can look to Jesus as a field guide for overcoming temptation. And so let me start just by being reminded what happened on that, that fateful expedition into the wilderness. Let's read the passage again, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Just follow along as, as I read. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Now, as we revisit this passage, we're not going to go verse by verse this time. We did that last time. You can get that message. But as a first order of business, we do want to revisit two questions we punted from last time, two critical theological questions we just didn't have time to answer, but they have to be answered if we're going to find any real practical value in this text that it can be meant for us to learn from. So we're going to do that straight away. Kind of leftovers from last time. The first question we left over was this, could Jesus have sinned? This question always comes up when we think about the temptation of Christ could he actually have done it? Everyone agrees he didn't sin, but could he have sinned? Which is to say, were his temptations genuine? We didn't have time to answer this last time, but it has to be answered because you know, if Christ's interaction with the devil in the wilderness was just a charade, then th this doesn't serve us at all. It's hard to, to truly say he would be our sympathetic high priest or that we could actually follow his example. Because for us, it's not a charade. We are really facing temptation. We have to believe. Scripture says he did too. His temptations were real. But then many ask, doesn't that mean he had to have been able to sin to make them real? But then again, wasn't he God? So isn't that not possible? Which is it? There are two sides of this debate that go back to the beginning of church history. And they each find some support in the two natures of Jesus. And first, some would say, yes, 
Of course, he was able to sin, even though he didn't, because he was truly human. He had a real human nature, just like Adam before the fall. And that, that comes with the ability to sin. And that seems to be the case that in his human nature, because it was a real human nature, it had the ability to sin. But others would still say no, because he had a divine nature, he was not able to sin. And Jesus was also fully God. James 1.13 makes clear God can't sin. God can't even be tempted by sin. And so because he had a divine nature, he could not have sinned. And they both make true statements on both sides of his two natures. The thing is, during the incarnation, you have these two natures coming together in one person. And as the Chalcedonian Creed says, these two natures coexisted without confusion, without change, without separation, without division. Each nature retained its characteristics as they came together in the one person of Christ. This still makes us wonder, like, how did these two natures coexist in this one person during his time on earth? I mean, I don't know. What, what happens when a divine nature, which is not able to sin, becomes joined to a human nature, which is able to sin? What happens? Well, when it came to his other divine attributes, Jesus allowed these to be limited by his human nature during his time on earth. His, we would say this, his divine nature was possessed, but not expressed. Possessed, but not expressed. That's why, although he was omnipotent in his divine nature, he had all power. But on earth, we find him falling asleep, getting hungry, growing tired. In his divine nature, he was omniscient. He knew everything, but on earth... There are some things he didn't know. He had to learn. He grew in knowledge. The whole point of the incarnation was for Jesus to live as a human, that he might be our perfect substitute. It is different, though, when it comes to Christ's divine attribute of impeccability. That means not being able to sin. Now, during the incarnation, it wasn't against God's divine nature to limit certain expressions of that nature. In other words, God could still be God while limiting the expression of his omnipotence or his omniscience. That didn't defy his nature. But you see, when you're talking about sin, it, it is different. Can God still be God while limiting his holiness? Sin is something for which God has zero tolerance. And seeing how scripture makes it clear that sin is completely against the nature of God. It does not seem God could ever limit his holiness so as to accept the possibility of sin. And so while it's true that in his human nature alone, he could have sinned, his human nature was never alone. It was always inseparably tied to this divine nature. And the divine attribute of impeccability could never be suppressed per God's holiness. And seeing how these two natures were always tied together, if Jesus had sinned in his human nature, it would have defiled his divine nature. God would cease to be God. It just could never be. And so we have to conclude that although in his human nature, he could have sinned, but because it was tied to his divine nature, ultimately it was not possible for him to have sinned. An illustration here might, have, might help. Picture a thin broomstick representing our human nature. Can you break that broomstick? 
yeah, a strong enough person could snap it over their knee. And that's like the weakness of our human nature. It can be broken. We can be made to sin. But now if you take that thin broomstick and you tie it inch by inch to a steel crowbar, now can you break the broomstick? No, not anymore. Now that it is inseparably tied to the steel crowbar, you have no hope of breaking it. It's no longer possible. The strength of the steel bar prevents it. And so in the end, we have to likewise conclude because this human nature was inseparably tied to a divine nature, that Jesus was unbreakable, impeccable. Because of the union of these two natures, he was not able to sin. But we're not quite done because at this point, that we go right back to that question from the other side. Namely, if that's true, how could his temptations be real? If he wasn't technically able to sin, that seems to invalidate the genuineness of his temptations and therefore his role as our example. How can we really follow him? Because we sure can be tempted to sin. That seems like a very legitimate problem until you make one more distinction that, that scripture itself makes. So listen carefully. You have to make the distinction between why Jesus could not sin and why Jesus did not sin. You have to make a distinction between why he could not sin and then why he did not sin. And I'll explain that. Why could Jesus not sin? Because of his divine nature. It ultimately prevented the possibility. But that's not why he did not sin. Jesus did not sin because he utilized all the spiritual resources given to him in his humanity, just like we are supposed to do. In other words, he didn't overcome sin by just falling back on the steel bar, on his divine nature. No, rather, he faced all temptation in the power of his human nature alone. And as he walked by the Holy Spirit, he overcame temptation each and every time, just like we are meant to. And he really was our example. Think back to that broomstick illustration. Yeah, technically, you can't break the broomstick because... It's tied to the steel bar. But, but that's not why Jesus was unbroken. Rather, in a sense, in the power of the broomstick alone, he faced all challengers. It's as if Satan came up to the broomstick and tried his hardest to break it and couldn't. And Jesus wasn't using the power of the steel bar in that temptation. He, he didn't need to. The whole mission was to face it in the power of the broomstick, the human nature alone. His divine nature was not called in as backup to resist these temptations. Rather, as a true spirit-filled man, Jesus overcame in the power of his human nature alone. Again, that's the whole point of the incarnation. He refused to be helped along by his divine nature. If he cheated like this, it would have voided the whole mission. There's no purpose for coming to be our substitute sacrifice and our new head. Jesus had to obey God's law perfectly, overcome all temptation and never sin. All in the power of his human nature and utilizing only the spiritual resources God gives to mankind. And that's precisely what he did. This is why we can say in the end, his temptations were real. He faced them just like we face them. 
which means his victory over them was likewise real. Like Hebrews says, we we really can go to Jesus. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows the weakness of the human condition. But he still shows us it is possible to overcome, to deny temptation. And you don't have to be God to do it. As a human, utilizing the resources God has given you, you too can overcome temptation. This is why the way Jesus did battle in the wilderness can be our example. Now, before we look at that, one more quick question we need to answer from last time. This was a second holdover question. Does God tempt us? Does God tempt us? It's another big question we just didn't have time to answer, but it stems from verse 1 in Matthew 4. This temptation came from the devil, but You can see how verse 1 says it was actually the Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That kind of makes us wonder, like, what's going on? Is God actually responsible for Christ's temptation? And if so, is he responsible for our temptations? That, That feels a little wrong, a little disingenuous. Can that be? If God is the one tempting us, how can we really look to him for help? We need some clarification here. And for this, I just have to briefly explain the relationship between tempting and testing. Verse 1 here, the word temptation, it translates the Greek word perazo. And what makes this a bit confusing is that one Greek word has two main definitions. To tempt and to test. That's right. The same Greek word is translated both ways as a temptation or as a test. Positively, it means to put someone through a test. Negatively, it means to put someone through a temptation. How do you know which is which? Well, it comes down to the context and the intent. If there's positive intent, that the goal is to see someone approved, you have a a test or a trial. If there's negative intent, you want to see someone disqualified, well, that's a temptation. James, in his epistle, uses both words in a similar context. You remember James 1, 2. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various pyrosmas, trials. It's not talking about temptations. The context makes that clear. The next verse, he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Trials most definitely come from God. But they're not designed to solicit you to do evil. They're designed to bring the best out of you. These fires of life are meant to to burn away all that does not belong and to purify your faith. God always has good purposes in the trials he sends our way. But here in Matthew 4, this word is rightly translated temptation. It doesn't say Satan tested Jesus, although you could translate it that way. Rightly, do we say he tempted Jesus? And that's because Satan's goal was to make Jesus fall. He was trying to make him do evil. And that's the definition of a temptation. But like James 1.13 says, that that's something God doesn't do. He never sends anything your way with the goal of making you fall. He never intends that you stumble. God never tempts. He will never introduce anything in your life in an attempt to solicit you to do evil. That's against his nature. 
Now, the only kicker is that God in his sovereignty can certainly use the temptations coming from others as part of his tests, which are designed for our good. And that's something God does. He takes what others mean for evil and actually uses them for our good. And that's what's going on here in Matthew 4. Was it God's will for Jesus to enter that wilderness and be tempted by the devil? Yes, absolutely. Why though? Not so that his son might fall into sin. That was Satan's will. That was Satan's goal. That's what he was trying to do. And Satan was acting of his own accord. But God sovereignly repurposed Satan's own plans for his plans. And God would use the devil's temptations as a test for his son with the intent of showing him steadfast and movable and sinless. As the saying goes, safe harbors don't make for skilled sailors. God willingly allowed his son to to pass through these fires that his own trust in his heavenly father might be demonstrated verified and approved. This is just like God later tested the apostle Paul. Second Corinthians 12, Paul relates how he had this thorn in the flesh. He calls it a messenger from Satan tormenting him. And he asked God three times to take it away. And God said, no, God allowed this as a test. God's design though was good. It was for Paul's good. It was to keep him from exalting himself, to make him rely on God's grace every day. God was perfecting Paul through this trial, which came about through some likely demonic temptation. God still does this, does this. Like Abraham and like Israel, like Jesus, he puts his children to the test. But God's design is always to prove and to purify his people. Some of these tests might come in the form of temptations from others. But but God's will is always that you pass the test. In fact, he's the one providing you with a way of escape each and every time. Is he not? You know, 1 Corinthians 10.13. It says, no pyrosmos, no temptation has overtaken you. But such as is common to man, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you'll be able to endure it. He's not out there hoping you drown. He's the one out there throwing you the life raft, the life preserver. He's the one giving you the way of escape that you don't have to sin. God will allow you to be tempted and tested. Yes, but he'll never allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to handle. Why? Because his design is that you overcome. He's wanting you to resist the temptation and endure the trial. Never is it his desire to solicit you to evil. And that's a good promise to lay hold of. You You can count and bank on the fact that your father has good intentions for you. And there's always a way of escape. Whatever temptation you may have faced this past week, you can look back and say, you didn't have to do it. There was some way of escape, some means to flee, if only you would take it. God's always faithful. He'll never be the unfaithful one in this equation. We are the unfaithful ones. But we can cling to this promise that he will uh, provide a way out. 
Okay, so, so far we've established, considering this text overall, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, this was real. Jesus was being genuinely tempted by the devil. This, at the same time, this was a test brought on by God, but God was with him, intending to prove him. Jesus faced these temptations in the power of his human nature. So he faced them like you and I would have faced them. But by walking by the Spirit, he overcame. And this is why the author of Hebrews says we can look to him for help in a time of need. We can be helped by him. We can imitate him as he handled sin. So that just brings us back to that original question, basically, which is, which is this. We can, I guess, call this question three. How can we look to Jesus as a field guide for overcoming temptation? How practically can we look to Jesus as a field guide for overcoming temptation? How do you do it? Okay, he, do, he wasn't cheating. He wasn't just calling in his divine nature. So how do you do it? Well, first, it's helpful to observe the nature of temptation. You ever thought about that? Like, what is temptation? How does it work? Temptation is not sin. It is rather the, uh, the attraction of sin, the impulse to sin, or the invitation to turn away from God's will. And these temptations always originate or, or take root in the level of our desires. In a way, you could say there are three main categories of these heart-level temptations. The lusts or desires, same word, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, like John says in 1 John 2.16. Is that not how Satan deceived Eve the first go-around? As she beheld that forbidden fruit and thought, hey, it's, it's a pleasing to the eyes. It's a delight, or rather it's good for food. It's a delight to the eyes and it's desirable to make one wise. You know, for Adam and Eve, their desire for food, even their desire for wisdom wasn't wrong. Rather, what was wrong was their willingness to go outside God's bounds to get these things. They were willing to violate God's will to satisfy their own will. And so it goes for all sin. And that's what's behind all temptation. Anytime we're willing to go against God's word, outside his bounds to get something, to satisfy some desire, we sin. Satan knows this. He knows how to tempt us accordingly, soliciting us to find satisfaction outside God's good bounds. Isn't that what he was doing in tempting Jesus? Think about these three temptations, which we already covered, but many would liken the first temptation to command stones to become bread as an appeal to the lust of the flesh, the desires of his human nature. The second temptation to put God to the test as an appeal to the pride of life. And the third temptation to gain the kingdoms of earth the easy way as an appeal to the lust of the eyes. Jesus did not have a fallen human nature, so it wasn't already bent and twisted out of shape, but he did have a real human nature with the full range of human desires, just like Adam before the fall. And like Adam, Satan was tempting him to fulfill those desires outside God's good bounds, to usurp God's desires 
with his own. And you don't think that after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, that this human desire of hunger was incredibly strong for Jesus. And it would have been all too easy for him to just go against God's will and just turn some stones into bread to satisfy these desires. But Jesus knew that wasn't God's will. And he wasn't about to put his will against God's will or over God's will. He came only to do his father's will. And Jesus knew in that moment, it was the father's will for him to fast in that wilderness until the Lord provided. And Christ would rather starve to death than go against his father's will. Because there are some things matter, that matter more than staying alive, like we learned last time. But a real battle was being fought on the level of desires. Would Jesus put his human desires above his father's desires? Would he functionally be praying, my will be done on earth? Or God's will be done on earth? Again, thankfully, for our sakes, Jesus overcame. He fulfilled his mission, and he did that by submitting his each and every desire to the Father's desire. And Jesus never walked outside of God's will once. But look, now this is the same battle we face each and every day, this battle of desires or wills. Our will versus God's will. And the question is, whose will will win? At an unexpected time, something prompts our lusts, our inner desires. It could be coming from Satan and demons. It could be coming from the world. It could be coming from your own flesh. We actually never know from where these temptations truly come. But you know what? It doesn't matter. All that matters is how we respond. In the moment, though, some proposition to sin incites our lusts. And our desires, our fleshly desires are telling us, Eat that fruit. It's good for food. It's a delight to the eyes. It's a desirable to make one wise. Do it. And that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life are conspiring again to drag us into sin. And they will win unless, unless what? Unless like Jesus, our desire to honor and obey God is stronger. Our desire for righteousness is stronger than all those other desires, which in this life, they're not going to go away. But do you have other stronger desires that win that tug of war that won't let you be pulled into sin, but drag you away into righteousness? Look to Jesus. He understood that he would stay far away from sin if he guarded his heart. If he kept his heart away from every evil desire. If he maintained righteous desires in his heart. Desires that always aligned with God's will. That is precisely what he did so as to overcome. And so we kind of go back to that big question like, well, how did he do that? How did Jesus win the war within, the, the war of desires, so that he was never carried away into the deeds of the flesh? You might say, well, you know, he was God. So it's basically automatic. He didn't have to do anything. But again, I don't think that's the answer. That wasn't the purpose of the incarnation. He came living as a human, facing temptation as a human. He faced it like you and I face. Instead, I mentioned this in passing before, but I'll say it again. Jesus overcame by fully utilizing 
all the spiritual resources God gives us to overcome. He fully utilized all the spiritual resources God gives us humans to overcome. What resources are we talking about? There are three main ones. The Holy Spirit, the Word, and prayer. And Jesus chiefly relied on these resources and they empowered him in his humanity to live rightly before God. And what do you know? These are the same resources God gives to us to do the same thing. In fact, God expects us to live and walk and resist all temptation in the same manner Jesus did by this daily, moment-by-moment reliance on the Spirit, the Word, and prayer. Yes, Jesus had a divine nature, but that's not why he overcame temptation. Every single day, every single moment, he was in constant dependence on the Spirit, the Word, and prayer. And these enabled him to walk righteously and to glorify God. And so now it kind of sounds like we should explore these three resources a little bit more. First, you have the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was no doubt a man completely filled and directed by the Holy Spirit in his earthly walk. And he promised us that the same Spirit would dwell in us. Think back to his upper room discourse the night before he died. And several times he's promising to his disciples that another helper, the Holy Spirit, is going to come to them. Even in John 16, 7, he said it's to their advantage that he ascends to the Father because then the Spirit would come down and this helper would reside within them. This helper would indwell them. He would convict them of sin. He would lead them in truth and righteousness. The more you think about that, it's an amazing promise. The same Spirit that filled Jesus and enabled him to live perfectly as a man now dwells in you for the same purpose. If you're here and you believe the gospel, you've repented of your sins before God. You've You've gone to Christ in faith, calling out for mercy to be justified by his death and resurrection. If that's you, then you too have been filled by his spirit. That's a pretty big deal. And having begun in the spirit, do you think you're now going to be perfected in the flesh? Do you expect that you're now going to be able to overcome your ongoing sin battles just by your own strength? No, rather by the same spirit. Like Paul says later in the book of Galatians, Galatians 5.16, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. In this life, those desires may not go anywhere, but you don't have to carry them out. Just walk by the Spirit. Be Spirit-filled, which is to say Spirit-controlled, just like Jesus. That's how you bear the fruit of the Spirit, not the deeds of the flesh. Now, we're not totally passive, though. God gives us a necessary role to play. In short, we we have to starve the flesh, feed the spirit. And we do that in the mind. In the mind. Romans 8.5 lays down a a critical principle. Romans 8.5, talking about the spirit, says, For those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, The things of the spirit. Physical food enters your mouth and fuels your body. Spiritual food enters your mind and fuels your soul. You take it in with your mind. But not all is good food. 
fact, most people have a terrible diet. And some are just eating poison, feeding the lusts of their flesh because they're setting their mind on sin throughout the day. And they're wondering why they struggle with sin so much. Well, what are you thinking about all day? But realize your thinking determines your doing. And your desires are going to be determined by your mind. This, this whole battle is going to be fought and won or lost in the mind. And you're going to find the spirit aiding you and changing your desires for good as you set your mind on things above. You've been raised with Christ, right? Colossians 3.1. So, so why aren't you setting your mind on things above, not on things here below? And the primary food God has given us for this spiritual growth is what? The word of God. The same word the spirit inspired, he now uses to feed us and fuel these new righteous desires from within. You can recall Ephesians 6. We won't turn there for time, but the armor of God passage where he says in verse 11, it says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. God's equipped us to overcome temptation. But when you keep reading about this armor of God, you might know that there's only actually one weapon mentioned in all the armor. It's a sword, the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. This brings us to the second resource God has given us to overcome, which, which is the word, the Holy Spirit, and then the word. And speaking of the armor of God, its purpose, it says that you would be able to resist in the evil day. God wants you to resist. He wants you to resist spiritual forces of darkness. He wants you to resist the world. He wants you to resist your flesh, sin. Don't fall. Stand firm. He's equipped you for this. He's given you armor. But you know, he's not talking about literal breastplates and shields and helmets. It's a metaphor. I hope that's obvious. But as you read it, what does the armor signify? You read it closely, it just it all represents truth. The armor of God is about the gospel, faith, salvation, righteousness, and the word of God. That's what it represents. And a word is just truth. All the truth God has given us to equip our minds, that's the armor. You need armor for your mind, not your body. Because I mean, do you understand the war you're in? All temptation, whether it's coming from the devil or the world or your own flesh, it's all based on lies. Satan is the father of lies. He started the thing off with a lie, a deception. Did, did God really say? Why would you ever believe that? Why would you ever deviate from God's good, perfect will for your life? Well, only if you're deceived. If you bought into some lie. And look, we know for us it's all too easy these days. But you have to realize we're in a truth war. And all temptation is based on some lie. When you sin, usually without realizing it, you've just bought into some lie. You've lost a skirmish in this truth war. So how do you think you fight in this war? With truth. By the Spirit. Set your mind on what is true. Recall God's promises. Remember the gospel of your salvation. Use the word of God to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And look, isn't this what Jesus did? Matthew 4, we're just kind of surveying it a second time from 40,000 feet. But how did Jesus 
battle the devil, so to speak, in the wilderness. They, they weren't actually fighting, but it was a, a battle of minds, wasn't it? But each of Satan's temptations came with these subtle falsehoods, very equivalent to, did God really say? But each time, how did Jesus respond? Each time, three times, he just said, it is written. It is written. It is written. I know what you're saying, Satan, but I think you're forgetting it is written. God the Father has said something else about that. Did, did God really say, I'll, I'll tell you what God really said, it is written. Jesus merely quoted the scriptures in context, rightly divided. God said, enough said, end of story. That's how you shut down temptation. It's truly like Jesus said in his first response to temptation, here in Matthew 4, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's not just a messianic passage. That, that's meant for all of us. All of us are meant to live by the word of God. It should matter more to us than life itself uh, to obey God, because that's the path to true life, life everlasting and life to the fullest. And lastly, now that the third resource God gives to us to overcome that Jesus wielded was prayer. And you go to that armor of God passage in Ephesians 6, it's no coincidence that right after, Paul says this in verse 18. It says right after, he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, meaning spiritual warfare, and be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. For the sake of perseverance for yourself and for others, you better be praying at all times in the spirit, he says. Prayer is our lifeline to God's power. Our triune helper is on call 24-7 if you would just pray. And don't you think Jesus did that? He's in the wilderness for 40 days before these main temptations. Don't you think he was using that time praying and communing with his father? It is true the text does not explicitly say, but every other time we see Jesus being tempted or tried, he's praying. It's not a stretch to think he was praying during these 40 days of, temp of trial. I mean, consider the other massive moment of temptation Jesus faced, the Garden of Gethsemane. All he did was pray. He knew he had to, to seek extra strength from his father to endure this final test, the trial of the cross. And so he prayed so intensely, his sweat became like drops of blood. And then he told his disciples this, Matthew 26, 41. He told them, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. His flesh was weak too, not sinfully weak, but just being a human nature, inherently weak. That's why he was praying. Christ's prayers were not a sham. He needed power because he just had a human nature to rely on for this test. The same goes for us. You want to stay out of temptation? It's going to come, but do you want to stay out of it? Well, keep watching and praying. Your flesh is weak too. Romans 8.26 says the spirit helps our weaknesses. We don't even know how to pray as we should, but the spirit intercedes for us. You, you just pray. Just pray. God knows when you're being tempted. 
He knows when you're being tried and tested. What do you think? He, he doesn't see or he doesn't care. He's sovereign over all of this. You realize he's on your side. He's the only one truly on your side. If you're his child by faith, your good father is in heaven. He's equipped you with armor. He's given you a way of escape each and every time. He wants you to take it. And you need to rely on him through your high priest, your mediator, Christ. And you do realize the whole point of all those Hebrews passages, which shows Jesus is our qualified high priest. The whole point is that we would then go to him in prayer for help. Listen to that. The longer version of Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. It's not all that complicated. Think of a sailboat. What does it take for it to move in the right direction? We need wind. Got to have the wind blowing. Then you got to hoist the sails. Then you got to steer the rudder in the right direction. You need all three. In this equation, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. He's the actual power source for our growth and our movement. The thing is, though, the Spirit has already been given, which means it's always windy. The wind is always blowing in your life. The question is, are you going to hoist the sails and take advantage of it? That, that's your job. You have to hoist the sails to catch the wind. You do that through prayer. And prayer is the divinely ordained means of accessing God's power for help in a time of need. You must pray. But even then, it's all for naught if you're pointed in the wrong direction. You've got to steer the rudder in the right direction. You do that by the word of God. The word is your compass. It keeps you true north. It keeps you from getting lost. You need all three at all times. And so if you're here and you're not sailing well, you've been falling into sin time and time again. What's the problem? I can tell you it's not the wind. It's not going to be the Spirit's fault. If you're truly saved, you have the Spirit. The question is, are you prayerlessness? Or are you prayerless, rather? Have you fallen into prayerlessness? Then are you spiritually starving? Have you not taken in any dose of food for your mind at all? Think of a, a sin issue in your life right now. Think of some temptation you repeatedly fall into and you know you probably will again sometime soon. What have you done about it? Do you just expect it to go away? I think your past history would tell you otherwise. You have to ask first, are you being pointed in the right direction? Can you think of even one relevant scripture to bring to bear on your temptation? Not like a, a verse is just a magic charm, but the Spirit says he will use the word to, to guide us and convict us in the moment. So have you set it to mind? Psalm 119.11, David says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. So what verse have you memorized in your battle to overcome sin? None? Are you able to wield the sword of the Spirit like Jesus? 
If Jesus, in his humanity, had to memorize tons of scripture to refute the devil in the wilderness, don't you think you have to do that even more? And then secondly, have you prayed? Have you gone to your high priest? Do you pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view to overcome your temptation? Or do you only pray in guilt after you've already lost the battle? Look, if you don't draw near to the throne of grace, what are you expecting? If you never hoist the sails, why are you confused that you're not going anywhere, that you've not progressed in your spiritual growth? You're sitting around stationary. The wind's howling out there, but like, why am I not moving? And meanwhile, you've never actually hoisted the sails. And also, you know, relatedly, can I insert, who is praying for you? Who's praying for you? We're not just to pray for ourselves in this battle, but for one another. And technically, there's actually a fourth resource the Lord gives to us to overcome sin that Christ himself didn't really get to use. It's the church. But one of the main reasons the Lord put us together in one body after salvation is that we might help one another, guard one another, protect one another, pray for one another. Just like Hebrews 3.13 says, it says, encourage one another day after day, so long as it's called today, so that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Almost every time I meet a believer who's been hardened by sin, they've been alone for a long time, spiritually alone for a long time. Have you recruited anyone else in the church in your struggle against sin? Does anyone here even know what you're up against? Or you just kind of keep it to yourself? And I'll tell you, that's another lie Satan has fed to your pride. You can't bring your sin to the light. You can't actually tell someone else to get help. They will shame you. Your own church members will reject you and judge you. That's a lie. Now, seeking prayer and accountability from your church family is one of God's gifts to you. That's part of his equipping. Sometimes you're just not strong enough to to hoist all these sails by yourself. You need some help. But listen, you, you neglect the help of the church to your own shame and defeat. I'll say that again. You neglect the help of the church to your own shame and defeat. You have the word of God. You have the the privilege of prayer. You've got the church. You have the Holy Spirit. What are you lacking in your struggle against sin? You have what Jesus had as he walked in his humanity. That was enough for him. It is enough for you. The only question is, will you rely on what God has given you all the time? None of us do. Who here relies on what God has given us all the time? I don't. But you can resolve today to do so, to to get up, to follow Christ again, and to to seek him through the word, through through prayer, through his church, and by the spirit. You can resolve today and make a a huge change in course today. In a real way, this whole discussion about overcoming temptation boils down to faith. Temptation is, for us, as old as time. Just, you know, get what you want without waiting, by putting self first and God last. Just, just take what you want. Even though God has said no or not now, just, just take it. Fulfill those desires by the lie. Settle for that cheap thrill. We do it all the time, and every time it leaves us dissatisfied, usually with some other pain or sorrow in our life. It happens every time. 
But the Lord Jesus leads us above all. And he leads us most in this. We see it in Matthew 4. This just complete sold out trust in his heavenly father. That he's there. That he's good. That he's wise. He's in control. He will satisfy me. I don't need this other thing. I have my father in heaven. Jesus just fully trusted God is good. He sees us. He sees all we go through. He cares for us. He knows the end of the story. He has good in store for us here and hereafter for those who trust in him. Jesus knew not even death could separate him from his father's love. If he died in the wilderness, so be it. His, his, his father would take care of it all. The same goes now for us in Christ. You just have to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And you do that by trusting your good, your wise, your sovereign, your caring God. He will work it out for your good. He will satisfy your heart his way. How'd it work out for Jesus? You realize everything Satan tempted Jesus with, Jesus got in the end. He didn't have to turn stones into bread. The Lord eventually fed him. He didn't have to put God to the test. The Lord preserved him. He didn't have to gain the nations the easy way. The Lord gave them to him. Jesus found satisfaction, but he found them God's way righteously. God still rewards and blesses those who trust him and obey. And likewise, God has good in store for you too, for those who believe, who just believe in him, just this humble, childlike faith and dependency. But will you resolve to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Those who exalt themselves before this God will be humbled eternally. Those who, however, humble themselves before this God, like Jesus, just depend on him, cry out to him, plead to him, they will be exalted. So trust your God, follow your Savior, depend on his spirit, and then you too will be able to overcome all the trials and temptations of this life. Let's pray for help. Our Father, we we do that now. We, We pray for your help. We confess our weakness. And I think we all, I hope we all know all too well how weak we are. In our flesh, we cannot do this. We see the standard. We see how Jesus walked. We know how far we fall short. We stumble into sin daily. We, we cannot do this, but we can in Christ, through Christ, following him, this great savior, our field guide to overcoming temptation. He has gone before. He has shown us the way. There's a way to, to please you and be satisfied at the same time. It's not the way of Satan. It's not the way of the world. It's not the way of the flesh. We must deny and overcome We we can exalt you, Lord, and and praise you that you've not left us without help. We have a high priest who sits in the heavens and throne at the right hand, who hears us, intercedes for us. He sent his spirit to fill us. His own power now dwells within that we might walk rightly before you. You've given us a privilege to pray. You've given us the word of God to guide us. You've even given us the church. How often we just don't take advantage of these things. We We all are convicted by this, Lord, but still... Your mercy is new every morning. Every, mercy, every morning you're renewed in your mercy and your kindness to us. And may we turn this conviction into change and resolve to, to sin no more, to get back up, to follow this Savior. 
especially in days like these, as dark times might be ahead, all the more so we need to cling to all that you've given us to overcome, to please you and overcome. Be with us in this expedition until Christ returns. Fill us with your spirit. May we please you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.